This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 19th, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Samuel Wasser talks about using genetics to locate elephant poachers. David Grimm is here with some online news stories. And Suzanne Bard has a story on the sound of the letter R from the Acoustical Society meeting. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on what happens when the devil disappears. Okay, we're talking about Tasmanian devils. This is still science. Tasmanian devils are in a huge decline due to a kind of a, a strange transmissible cancer. Now, Dave, there's obviously concern for the loss of these animals, but there's also worries about the impact that their decline will have on the ecosystem that they belong to. What kind of changes might we see? Well, Sarah, this all has to do with something ecologists call a landscape of fear. And basically that means that top predators in an environment, whether you're talking about Tasmanian devils in this case or even wolves in Yellowstone, play an important role in the ecosystem, not just by killing prey animals and sort of keeping their populations under control, but actually keeping them in fear. And the idea is if these animals are in fear, maybe they're less likely to forage out of control, which can be bad for vegetation. And so the researchers were curious whether they would see something similar with Tasmanian devils if they disappeared with their prey, which is known as the common brush-tailed possum, get less fearful, and might that be bad for the environment? In this study, the researchers compared the behavior of this prey species, the possum, on two islands. What were some of the different conditions the possums experienced? Well, one of the islands called Maria Island was devil-free until 2012. And there were other places the researchers looked where there were still some devils or where cancer had killed up to 95% of the devils. They were looking sort of at a range of locations. In these different locations, they then offered the possums some treats to come out of their hiding spots? Well, they put out some raisins in containers, uh, apparently possums like raisins, and they put these containers on the ground, but they didn't make it that easy. They actually mixed in some stones with these raisins. So the possums would actually have to spend some time on the ground sifting through these stones to get to the raisins. And the idea is that these possums usually live in the trees. They don't spend a lot of time on the ground because they're typically attacked by 
Tasmanian devils when they're on the ground. But with the devils gone, would the possums spend more time on the ground? Would they, in, in essence, be unafraid enough to be sorting through these stones to get their raisins. So what happened when there weren't any Tasmanian devils around to pounce on the possums? And that's what happened. What happened was these possums did show a lot less fear, that they did spend more time on the ground eating these raisins. They just didn't seem as concerned about predators being around. Will there be an overgrowth of possums in these areas? That's the question. Will these possums sort of start breeding out of control? And will they have a deleterious effect on the vegetation now that they seem to be able to forage at will? And those are still open questions. Next up, we have a story on a distinct lack of herbivorous dinosaurs. This next study is based at one of my favorite places, Ghost Ranch in New Mexico. I've actually been there. It's beautiful. And it wasn't just an important stomping ground for the artist Georgia O'Keeffe. It's also home to an enormous cache of dinosaur fossils. Let's start there, Dave. What do we know about this fossil cache at Ghost Ranch? Well, sir, there's a lot of fossils here. And there's actually also a lot of bones that belong to a lineage that would eventually give rise to crocodiles and alligators. But although there's also a lot of dinosaur fossils here, researchers haven't found any fossils of giant dinosaurs, such as Brontosaurus and Diplodocus. Most of these dinosaurs are really found a lot farther north and south of the equator at this time in history. And the the bones that they find at the site are somewhere between 205 and 215 million years old. And there's been this open question. Why was there this lag between when dinosaurs first arose and their appearance in North America? And the researchers tried to use Ghost Ranch to find out. How did these fossils help answer that question? What we do know is dinosaurs first arose somewhere between 245 million and 230 million years ago. So there is this up to 30 million year lag between when they arise at their high latitudes in the southern hemisphere to when they get to places that are today North America. So what the researchers want to figure out is what was going on in the climate during this time that they find these Ghost Ranch fossils. And what the researchers did is they did a lot of measurements of the sediments and trying to figure out what were the levels of carbon and oxygen in the atmosphere at the time, also trying to get just a sense of the temperature. And what they found was that this time period was a very hot (laughs) and fiery time, at least in this part of the world. They found that, for example, carbon dioxide levels ranged between 1,200 and 2,400 parts per million. That's several times higher than the already elevated 400 parts per million that we're seeing in greenhouse conditions today. They also found that the temperatures averaged around 28 degrees Celsius. And finally, they suspect that there were a lot of wildfires around this time, just roaring through a lot of the forest at the time. Taken together, this would have been a pretty inhospitable environment, especially for larger dinosaurs that depend on a lot of vegetation to stay alive. If you're dealing with a lot of heat, a lot of wildfires, a lot of carbon dioxide in the air, that's pretty much an area you're not going to want to migrate into. This might be the answer for why there aren't a lot of vegetable-eating dinosaurs in this part of the world, at Ghost Ranch. But is this something that has been happening, that was happening along the equator on the whole planet at that time? Well, yeah, that's something we can't really answer right now. Even though Ghost Ranch is a really important site, it's just one site. It's just one place in the world. So scientists are going to have to look at a bunch of other sites to know for sure. Last up, we have a story on generating electricity through small changes in humidity. I think this is a very appropriate topic for those of us living here in Washington, D.C. This humidity has to be good for something. (laughs) So, Dave, how can one harness the power of humidity for good? Well, Sarah, the key is 
bacteria, specifically bacterial spores, and even more specifically, bacterial spores from a species known as Bacillus subtilis, which is a kind of bacteria commonly found in soil and also in the human gastrointestinal tract. What's cool about these spores is that when they're exposed to humidity, they swell up to 6% of their size and they shrink rapidly when that humidity is removed. Okay, bacteria are tiny, very, very tiny. And only changing their size by 6% isn't really going to get you very much. What kind of scale are we talking about? What can they do when they're so small? Well, 6% may not sound like much, but the researchers were able to scale it up by gluing thin layers of these spores onto one side of curved sheets of polymer. And what happens is when those spores swell, that side of the polymer sheet lengthens which in turn causes this curve sheet to straighten out. And when you put a lot of these sheets together, you get what the researchers call artificial muscles that can quadruple in length when the relative humidity, for example, changes from below 30% to more than 80%. And I like their sources of humidity. They were things like a wet paper towel. Right. <laughs> Not, they didn't necessarily harness the humidity of the D.C. summer. Right. What I also find fascinating is that these spores can do this one million times. That's some durability there. What kind of work can these minuscule generators accomplish? Well, the researchers did some fun things with these artificial muscles. One thing they did was they found that when these polymer strips shrank and grew, they could lift more than 50 times their own weight. They could also power a tiny LED light. And in the most fun example, they were actually able to power a tiny Ferris wheel-like device. And we have links to videos for all of these things on the site. It sounds kind of like a flea circus, Dave. <laughs> is there a larger aim here? Maybe a bacteria circus. <laughs> well, the idea is that when you think of changes in humidity, these are things that are happening anyway. So this is almost what scientists would call free energy. And we're always looking for that because the less we've got to pay for our energy, either by burning fossil fuels or gasoline or other things like that, the more environmentally friendly something is. So maybe we can create the next generation of free energy by harnessing the power of humidity. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a diet that appears to increase longevity in mice. Also a story about what three-year-olds can teach us about justice. For Science and Center, our policy blog, we're following the Pope's upcoming announcement on climate change and scientists' response to it. Also a story about a scientist who lost $3 million on the TV reality show Shark Tank but still came out ahead. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencebay.org. Every year, tens of thousands of African elephants are killed for their ivory. This illegal practice is threatening elephant populations with extinction. I spoke with Samuel Wasser about efforts to track where elephant ivory is coming from using genetic markers. We use DNA to determine the geographic origin of large ivory seizures, and those are seizures that weigh over a half a ton. The big finding of the paper was that virtually all of these seizures over the past decade came from really just two areas. And what that means is that targeting these areas allows us to potentially stop the largest 
poaching-related mortality of elephants occurring in Africa. So you're talking about a lot of ivory in these seizures. How big a problem is poaching right now? Well, first of all, it's really important to consider that the African elephant is the largest land animal in the world, and it's a major architect of its habitat. So it's what we call a keystone species. It's really important for dispersing large seeds that keep forests intact and maintain climate, that maintains open canopies and savanna. Currently, we're losing up to 50,000 elephants a year to poaching, and if you consider that there is less than 500,000 elephants remaining in Africa, it's not going to be very long until very few elephants, if any, remain. And this is already causing serious ecological and economic damage to the continent. And in your study, you used genetics to track down where ivory was coming from. Let's start with your source of the material. Where did you get the ivory and how did you get DNA from it? The ivory from the seizures come from the seizing countries. And one of the first things that you have to do, you imagine you've got a very large seizure that might have anywhere from a few hundred to a couple thousand tusks. So the first thing you need to do is to make sure you sample it in a way that's representative of it. So we developed a process that allows us to line the tusk so that each tusk is most likely to be next to its pair and then take one out. So now you've got all singleton tusks remaining. And the next thing we do is we look at all the tusks to see if there are external characteristics that suggest that these tusks might have been in the same place at the same time. For example, the way that they process the ivory, sometimes you may have whole tusks or tusks that were cut into smaller pieces. Well, the ones that were cut into small pieces were in the same place at the same time in a different place perhaps than the whole tusks. Similarly, lots of times tusks may be burned at the gum line, and that's because they try to heat it up to remove the tissue. There's other groups of tusks that don't have burn marks, and they've got lots of clumps of tissue on it. And so by getting those external characteristics that reflect these tusks were all in the same place at the same time and dividing them into those groups and then sampling proportionally in those groups, what you end up with is the number of tusks that you're going to cut the pieces of ivory from really reflect all the locations it came from. The next thing you have to do is extract the DNA and then amplify the DNA. And we use 16 different highly variable locations on the chromosomes. We extract and amplify from those samples, and then we visualize it on a fragment analyzer. And what that does is for those 16 markers, it gives us a full genotype for that tusk that gives us a very high degree of precision to assign it. Once you have these samples of DNA in hand from the seized ivory, how do you then map these identifiers across the entire continent of Africa? What we do is we compare that genotype of each ivory sample to a continuous DNA reference map that we've made from across Africa. We spent the last 15 years gathering samples of elephants from across the entire continent, and we primarily use dung samples or feces because they're so easy to find and collect. But we also sometimes will use tissue or hair, whatever colleagues have. We've collected about 1,500 samples, each from a unique individual and mostly from unique family groups, and that gives us very representative gene frequencies across the continent. The next thing that we do is we use a statistical algorithm that essentially uses all those reference samples to create a smooth, continuous DNA reference map across Africa that really is reflecting genetic differences between areas. And it's that reference map that we match the genotypes of the ivory to to get its assigned origin. 
And what did you learn about poaching from mapping the sources of ivory using this method? We've really learned a great deal about poaching. The first thing that we learned was that poachers tend to return to the same area repeatedly over time to fill their quotas. You know, people thought when we first started that these dealers will kind of cherry pick across Africa to pull together tusks from various locations to create a large seizure. And we found that simply is not happening. The other interesting thing that we found early on was that the ivory tends to be shipped from a different country from where it was poached. And this is a risk reduction strategy. If you catch the poachers, then it's hard for them to pinpoint the dealer because they're in a different country. The ivory arrives there. It's quickly packaged and sent out. What's really important about that is when you think about a seizure, the best evidence that you have is the paperwork that accompanied the seizure that said where it was first shipped out of. And until we made this realization that it's often shipped out of another country, it meant that they're really looking in the wrong country from where the ivory actually came from. You also found several hot spots, places that really yes. stuck out. Yes. The most important thing we found was that the number of major poaching hotspots across Africa are very, very small in number and very slow to change. In fact, over the last decade, we found that pretty much there are two major areas where virtually 100% of these large ivory seizures were derived from. And it tells us that knowing the origin of a fairly recent hotspot is telling you where the future poaching is also likely to occur because they are so slow to change. And it also tells us that it's very economically feasible to target these small number of hotspots and to really stop a huge proportion of the killing. We estimate that these large seizures constitute about 70% of all ivory being smuggled. So you imagine if you were able to target these two major hotspots and stop that, you would really stop a major part of the killing and you would also choke the major flow of ivory going into the elaborate networks that allow these transnational organized crimes to operate. What countries or what areas were these hotspots located in? The hotspot for forest elephants is in northeast Gabon and northwest Republic of Congo, as well as surrounding areas, including a place called Zangasanga in Central Africa Republic. That area right there is the largest remaining stronghold of forest elephants in Africa, in Savannah, and this is really the biggest hotspot of all, is coming from an area concentrated primarily in Tanzania. And probably two-thirds of all of the seizures that we have looked at have come from an area centered on Tanzania. And interestingly, in 2009, I published a paper in Scientific American that exposed that major hotspot. And it still persisted all the way until now. Now that you have this information and you've identified these hotspots, what are the next steps? Does the government step in? Is there an international organization that's going to take this information and do something about it? We can use this information to target the major poaching areas across Africa. And one of the things that's very important about this is being able to do this in as timely a manner as possible. But when we first started this work, the seizures were very hard to acquire because Governments were slow to turn them over or reluctant to do so. And so a lot of the information we were getting was dated. 
But over time, as countries saw the magnitude of poaching occurring in their own countries, as well as the power of this technique to be able to locate these hotspots, there started to be a change, and they started to become more willing to provide the seizures. And then three years ago, there was a decision which really changed everything. At the last conference of the parties for CITES, they passed unanimously a decision that said that all seizing countries will turn over their large seizures for origin analysis within 90 days of the seizure. And when that happened, it started a flow of ivory into our lab that allowed us to much more quickly see where the big poaching hotspots were occurring. And that allows us to now really stop these countries from denying the magnitude of the problem that they're having and for the international community to appreciate that these really are the sources of the problem. This is where we have to put international pressure and to work with these countries to help them to really shut these hotspots down. Is corruption a really big element in why some of these places have remained a hotspot for so long? If you think about it, if you are a hotspot and have been operating as such for 10 years or more, especially a hotspot that has been identified as such for quite a bit of time, it's really impossible to remain that hotspot if there isn't high level of corruption in the country that's permitting the ivory to get out. And that's probably the biggest factor that we have to deal with here, because if you imagine we're to just go to a country and say, okay, you're the biggest hotspot, we need you to do something about it, but a lot of the high-level officials are profiting from the trade, how are you going to get them to do something about it? The most important thing that I think this work does is it really makes it undeniable the magnitude of this hotspot, and it creates, hopefully, a basis for the international community to all collectively come together and to kind of change the way that we help these countries tackle these problems. In the past, they would give them lots of aid to address these situations. There was no accountability, and a year later, the problem still exists, and then they would throw more money at it and more money at it. And now, I think we can say, look, it's clear that you guys are the major players here, and it's time to do something about it. And I don't think it's worth sanctioning these countries, but I do think that you need to give the money in small doses to hold them accountable and make sure you get results. Samuel Wasser, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Samuel Wasser writes about tracking elephant poachers using elephant genetics in this week's issue. Come out, Mr. Wabbit. I have a winter surprise for you. Elmer Fudd has trouble with the letter R, and he's not the only one. When little kids talk, their R's often sound just like Bugs Bunny's nemesis. My four-year-old is a good example. Wabbit went in a waste cart and wound around the waste track. Wound and wound and he went vroom, vroom, vroom. That's because R sounds, referred to by linguists as rhotics, are particularly hard to pronounce and take a long time to master. And speakers of some English dialects, such as the Queen's English or the Boston accent, drop rhotics altogether in certain parts of words. For example, the famous phrase, But rhotics aren't just hard to learn in English. Suzanne Boyce wears several hats. She's both an engineer and a clinical speech pathologist at the University of Cincinnati. 
That skill set helps her investigate why rhotics are so hard to learn across languages. She and her team used ultrasound to look for similarities in how rhotics are produced across languages, and whether such similarities could explain why rhotics are one of the last sounds children master when they're learning to speak. I'm Suzanne Bard. Rhotics are a class of sounds that act in similar ways. They follow similar patterns. The way they interact with other sounds is similar. And typically, they're written with the letter R if the language uses the Roman alphabet. But they're made in a lot of different kinds of ways. So some are made like a trill, like R, and some of them are made in more the back of the throat, like the French R. And some of them are made when you're not touching the roof of the mouth, and some of them are made when you're touching the roof of the mouth. So there's a whole bunch of different ways that rhotics are made, but somehow they all sound kind of R-like. And they're really considered a linguistic mystery because people haven't been able to figure out what makes them act in the same way with different sounds. What got you interested in studying rhotics in different languages? We have been running a clinic to help kids who are having trouble pronouncing R. The cartoon character Elmer Fudd was exactly meant to sound like a kid who's having trouble learning how to pronounce his R's. So saying wabbit for rabbit, you know, saying woad rather than world, that would be the kind of thing that you hear from children who are kind of slow learning how to pronounce it, and you still get it from speakers who never quite managed it. And one of my students is actually from Puerto Rico, and he's very interested in a similar problem that children learning Spanish had. So we started to ask ourselves whether this was a problem with all rhotics in all languages, since we had noticed it in English and in Spanish. And we found this great book edited by Sharon McLeod, and we found, at least, you know, in this book, kids who were learning each of 22 different languages were having trouble with the rhotic of that language. That is, they acquire it late, much later than other sounds, and there's a small group of kids that don't even get it right when they're adults. So it seems across a wide range of languages, rhotics are just difficult. So we sort of thought that this must be connected. If rhotics in general are a mystery to linguists and rhotics in general are difficult for children to learn to pronounce and rhotics across languages are all pronounced differently, this was a big mystery. At the same time, we have been finding in our clinic that a lot of the children who are having trouble saying are were having trouble with the fact that to say R, at least in English, you need to move your tongue in two different directions at the same time. The front of the tongue has to get moved towards the roof of the mouth, and pretty much at the same time, the base of the tongue has to get moved towards the back of the throat. And as you can imagine, this is kind of a difficult thing to do in terms of motor movements. It's kind of like I don't know, rubbing the top of your head and trying to stick your tongue out at the same time. People can do it, but you have to train yourself. So we thought, well, maybe this is true for rhotics as a class. Maybe they have movements of the base of the tongue towards the back wall of the throat. 
it wasn't described in any of the descriptions uh, from the various languages we looked at. But that's not a surprise because up until very recently, we didn't have methods for imaging what was happening in the throat that would be safe for kids and adults. But nowadays, we have magnetic resonance imaging and we have ultrasound. So we could take a look and see if maybe this movement of the tongue base towards the back pharyngeal wall would actually be something that hadn't been described before, but might be the problem that children are having when they're learning how to pronounce the rhotics in their language. That is, they're having trouble with this simultaneous movement of two different parts of the tongue. So that's kind of our underlying hypothesis, that it hadn't been occurring to people that there was a movement towards the back wall of the pharynx. And so we went and looked. We looked at Persian, we looked at Turkish, we looked at Puerto Rican Spanish, and we looked at English, of course. Let's listen to some of these rhotics in different languages and tell me what we're hearing and what you found on the ultrasound. Okay, so we looked at trills. There's a trill rhotic in Spanish and a trill rhotic in Malayalam and kind of a trill rhotic in Persian. So we were looking at trills across different languages. So is this like me when I was trying to learn to roll my R's in Spanish class and say perro, for instance? That's exactly it, yes. So if you take the example of the Malayalam word rickshaw, rickshaw, which is made with a trill, it actually means the word rickshaw. That is made with the very tip of the tongue up against the roof of the mouth, and it's a difficult aerodynamic problem. You have to get the space between the tongue and the roof of the mouth just exactly right and push air through it, and it kind of flaps against the roof of the mouth. Then we looked at the French, which is considered a uvular trill or like a uvular fricative. So the back of the tongue against the upper wall of the throat and kind of trilled there. So that's in risk. Risk and you can hear it. Then we took a look at the Spanish trill, and that's in the word risas. Risas. And Spanish also has a tap, and that is made with just a quick tap of the front of the tongue up against the roof of the mouth, and that would be in toro. Toro. And we also looked at the Turkish. Rza. Which is considered an alveolar approximate, so you make it with the front of your tongue, but it doesn't quite touch the roof of the mouth and you kind of don't make a buzz like you would with a fricative. And we took a look at what was happening with the base of the tongue when people were saying these sounds and looked to see on the ultrasound if we could see the surface of the tongue at its base start moving towards the back wall of the pharynx. And for all of these words, we found that movement. Every time we have looked at a language so far, and they all have very different kinds of rhotics, we are seeing a movement of the tongue base towards the back wall of the throat. Interesting. And from the ultrasounds, what do you make of the similarities you found across languages? So we start with this speculation. This is just our theory that maybe all rhotics, what they have in common is this movement of the tongue base towards the back wall of the throat and that might be what answers the linguistic mystery of what's the same across rhotics in different languages. And that it's that 
movement by the tongue that is what children have trouble learning how to do. And that explains why so many rhotics across so many languages are developed late in children and cause problems in terms of learning how to pronounce them. It's like this athletic movement by the tongue that's a little more complicated than the athletic movement that you need to use for, say, vowels. And are there any practical applications of your research for children who have difficulty learning the rhotics of their own language? We're hoping that learning about what happens with the tongue base will help a lot of clinicians who are trying to figure out the best way to teach pronunciation to children, and that it will help clinicians who are not just working in English, but working in other languages. So we're very much hoping that this will be useful information for clinicians and children who are working in lots of different languages and learning to talk in lots of different languages, not just English. Thanks for speaking with me. It's been a pleasure. Suzanne Boyce and her colleagues presented their research comparing rhotics across languages at the 169th meeting of the Acoustical Society of America. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.